Hey, welcome to Crosswalk Church. Today, Pastor Jeff is bringing you a teaching, so head over to crosswalkphoenix.com and find today's message under the worship tab. There you can download the Crosswalk notes to follow along. And now, here's Pastor Jeff. Just a little public service announcement, uh, especially for the guys in the room. You have two days remaining. Just two days left. And if you're saying two days remaining until what? The answer is Valentine's Day. And so make sure that uh, you, know, you, you deal with whatever Valentine's Day preparations you need to deal with, because you got till Tuesday. Now, anybody want to guess? I think we should have a little Valentine's Day quiz. What century, and this is multiple choice, was the very first Valentine's Day card sent? Was it the 13th century, the 15th century, the 17th century, or the 19th century? Anyone want to guess? It was actually the 15th century in England. And for those of you who are English majors, you will appreciate this next name coming uh, out of my mouth. It was provoked by some poetry uh, written by Geoffrey Chaucer. Love that name. And, uh, and so the very first Valentine's Day card was sent in the 15th century, but it took 200 years for this to catch on in England. Uh, by the 17th century, it had become a thing. It had gone viral, but it wasn't until the 19th century that we had our first mass-produced Valentine's Day card, like a Hallmark card. So it it took a while for this holiday to progress. But listen to these statistics. Today, one billion Valentine's cards are sent out each year. That's billion with a B are sent out each year. This holiday has more cards sent on it than any other holiday except Christmas. You got it. We all send out all those Christmas cards. So it still holds the number one place, but this one is second. How many heart-shaped boxes do you think are, are sold on Valentine's Day? A lot. 35 million heart-shaped boxes of chocolates are sold on uh, Valentine's Day, and more than 220 million roses are grown for Valentine's Day. Isn't that interesting? We spend, as Americans, $20 billion in a typical year on Valentine's Day. I wonder what Dave Ramsey would have to say about that. That is $130 per person per year for Valentine's Day. So I hope if you're on Dave Ramsey and you're doing our Financial Peace University, you are saving up already for next year's Valentine's Day because $130, that's a, you need to save about a little more than $10 a month to be prepared for that. Now, this is a happy day for a lot of people. In fact, 6 million couples are going to get engaged on Valentine's Day this year. That's the estimate. But Valentine's Day actually has kind of a dark beginning. And uh, in, in order to understand the, the, the beginning of Valentine's Day, I have to get you to imagine you're in a time machine and you're going back, you're going back past the 15th century and the 13th century, uh, all the way back to the 3rd century, uh, way before Geoffrey Chaucer, and you're going to land your time machine in Rome and you might land it, let's say, on a Saturday and think to yourself, I want to go to church tomorrow. Now, you have to be careful how you ask this question in third century Rome because Christians were still under some pretty heavy persecution at this time. But as you ask around, you discover that there is this pastor, priest, uh, named Valentinius, 
who has some little house churches. And so you go and, and visit this church and you like this preacher and he's pretty good and you start going to church there, you discover an interesting fact about your preacher. And that is that he is secretly defying an order of the emperor. And the, the order of the emperor that he is defying is that he is marrying young couples, young men in particular, in the church to their lady loves, and he is getting them hitched up, which the emperor does not approve of, in fact, has issued an edict against the young men of the empire getting married because his opinion is that these young men will not fight as hard if they're worried about their families back at home or their loved ones back at home. He wants them to remain single so they'll be better soldiers. That's his philosophy. Valentinius, as a Christian, knows that God honors marriage. So he is secretly marrying these in defiance of the, of the emperor's order, and he gets caught. And he's subjected to trial. Now, much of this is legend. I will, I will tell you that. This is, uh, there's a lot of legend uh, built up around, around St. Valentinius. But uh, from the legends, uh, one of the things that we hear is that he's put on trial before a judge named Asterius. And Asterius has to tread very, very carefully as the judge because Asterius knows that he can't defy the emperor. On the other hand, he has a daughter that he believes Valentinius might have the power to heal. And so as the legend goes, Asterius takes Valentinius to the side and asks him if he would heal his daughter, which Valentinius does, and later on, according to the legend again, falls in love with Asteria's daughter. That's where it gets a little romantic. And, um, and of course, as he proceeds through trial, then Valentinius is unfortunately condemned to die. And because the emperor regards his transgression so seriously, he is going to, and this guy, by the way, Claudius II was nicknamed Claudius the Cruel, the emperor. And so he determines that Valentinius is going to be brought near to death twice and then finally executed. Not just executed, but brought near to death twice and then executed. So basically he has Valentinius beaten to within a hair's breadth of his life. And then he's taken to uh, another place where he has people surround him and rocks thrown at him until he is once again within an inch of his life. And then he sends, then uh, Claudius says, okay, chop his head off. And that's, what, that's how he dies. Now, there are scholars that study these legends, and it's, it's quite interesting because I, I looked at this, and this is what leads us into the message today. And one Christian scholar was asked, what, what do you take from the story of Valentinius? And this is what he said. What Valentine, St. Valentine, means to me is that there comes a time where you have to lay your life upon the line for what you believe. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do that, even to the point of death. Think about that for a moment. Because I think many of us are living in a time, and especially a place, where we don't often have to ask ourselves, would I lay my life on the line for what I believe in, for who I believe in, Jesus Christ? 
Would I be willing to sacrifice this life and be executed, maybe even very painfully the way Valentinius was, because I would never ever give up the cross of Christ and the mercy and the forgiveness and the love that have been poured out on me there. Because I would never give up trusting that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, my Savior. The one who is going to give me a much better life after this life, all by his grace, all by his mercy. And I would never turn that over, not even to save my skin in this life. It's an interesting proposition, isn't it? And while we're not often presented with that choice, the truth is many Christians in today's world are. If you do the research, you'll find that there are far-ranging estimates as to how many Christians in 2016 were asked to give up their life or turn away from their faith. The lowest estimates would say seven to 8,000 Christians were asked to make that choice. The higher estimates say up to 90,000 Christians were asked to make that choice. That's an incredible number of people. And that continues today in 2017. One of those higher estimates would say that this is happening every six minutes that someone is being asked to sacrifice their life or turn away from their faith. And so it's important, this series that we're going through, Jesus, Son of God, because in trusting that Jesus is the Son of God, we're trusting that he came for the very reason that would bring him here as the Son of God to be a true human, and that is to put himself on that cross and sacrifice himself for our sins. It's everything to be able to say that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's not just another human being, not just a, a wise prophet, not, not just uh, someone that we can listen to and take an example from, but someone who gave his life as our substitute so that, so that we could have everlasting life and forgiveness and freedom from our guilt and shame every day. And so it's important that we understand that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's why we've been going through this series. And today we're talking about testimony like none other. And what that means is, what did the people who were with Jesus, who knew him regularly, daily, followed him, what was their testimony? What, what kinds of things did they say about Jesus? I, I think you know, as, as I do, that it's important to know that when someone uh, ha has been connected with another person, that, that that's a good source of information about them. And so as we study John today, John's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And his account of some things that happened, this is what we're looking for. We're looking for them to declare to us what they saw and what they heard. And even when they were pressed, they themselves were pressed to, to, to go away from it. Even under interrogation by leaders and officials, what did Jesus do and what did they do? And that's where I want you to write down what the definition of, of testimony is. Testimony is a solemn declaration, usually made orally by a witness under oath in response to interrogation by a lawyer or, or, or authorized public official. We're going to see that today. 
we're going to see authorized public officials put Jesus under interrogation, and we're going to see what witnesses and what testimony he brings to bear. Here's what I'm going to tell you. All of us have to face a, a, a certain quirk of our sinful nature, of our desire as human beings who are fallen human beings, sinful human beings, to pay less attention to God's approval and God's love and God's opinion of us, to pay less attention to those than we pay to human approval, human love, and what other human beings think of us, their opinion of us. And what we're going to learn in today's message is there's a real danger to giving away God's approval and love for the approval and love of human beings. In Friday's, in, in Friday's email that I send out to the church that Dan sends out on his weeks, um, I, I, I mentioned that there is a hidden reason why some people struggle to believe. And in this message, I'm going to tell you what that hidden reason is. And it has to do with what I just mentioned to you. So let's dive in with that definition of testimony. And we're going to see the solemn declaration made by Jesus, by others, uh, as they are under interrogation. Now, we were in the time machine. We got to the middle of the third century, late third century. Let's get back in the time machine and land in the second year of Jesus' ministry. And in the second year of Jesus' ministry, if we were to be following him around, we'd notice something, and Pastor Dan shared that with us all last week, we'd notice that Jesus is getting very popular. In fact, scholars who study the life of Jesus break Jesus' ministry down into three uh, segments. The first year they call the year of inauguration, the beginning, the getting going of Jesus' ministry. The second year is called the year of popularity, and the third year is called the year of rejection. We're in the middle of this year of popularity, and crowds are following Jesus. John reports of Jesus feeding 5,000, but that number is deceptive, isn't it? Why? Who, who only are counted in that 5,000? Only the men. Only the men. So it's only adults, it's only males, it's not females, and it's not children. So factor that in your head. How, how many people do you think were actually there following Jesus that needed to be fed. That will give us an indication of what kinds of crowds were with Jesus in his year of popularity. Would you say 10,000, 15, if you add women and children to this? Maybe more. So these are, like Jesus has a traveling megachurch. And they're, they're going with him up to Galilee. They're coming back down with him to Judea. It's so bad that as Pastor Dan said in last week's message, when people needed to be healed, their friends couldn't even get them to Jesus. These guys had to make this plan to figure out a way through the crowd, get up on the roof of the house where Jesus was and drop their crippled friend for healing down into the midst by digging a hole through the roof. Now that's quite a project to get help for your friend, but that's what they had to do because of these crowd, because of Jesus' popularity. So, 
Jesus is, even on, at this time, he's, he's doing so many amazing things. If you read back into John 4, if you've got your Bible open, you can just page back a little bit and, and, and you can see the things that have been happening. Jesus talked with the Samaritan woman. We had that story several weeks ago and told her things about herself that he, unless he's the son of God, he would never have known. This was so convincing to the Samaritan townspeople. It says many of them became believers in Jesus. It says that he heals an an official's son. And that man walks away and finds out that his son is healed at the very moment that, that Jesus said that he would live. And then in John 5, the chapter that we're in today, Jesus takes a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. And on the spot, he heals him by saying, get up, take up your mat and walk. And he does. Meanwhile, as Pastor Dan taught us last week, it's not just the physical healings. He's teaching people about the forgiveness of sins. The man that gets dropped down in front of him through the roof, he, he, he teaches him and tells him that his sins are forgiven, that there is spiritual healing that comes through him and eternal life to be had in him. We'll see that today too. So can you see why... In Jesus' second year of ministry, with all this going on, Jesus is getting pretty popular. But I think you know what happens when someone gets very popular and begins to develop a widening circle of influence, don't you? That along with that widening circle of influence often comes the seeds of opposition. That as, that as people's someone like Jesus, a leader, as his popularity grows, there's going to be pushback. And that's exactly what we see in our text today. So if you've got your crosswalk notes or if you've got your Bible, take, let's take a look at John 5, verses 16 to 18. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to what? Help me. Persecute him. Right? There's the pushback. And, and not just nicey-nice pushback. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. See, they, they knew that when Jesus said, My father is always working, that was a reference to the heavenly father, to God. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, see, this was what they picked on Jesus for when he healed this man for 38, who was 38 years an invalid. I want you to think about that, because that's often how opposition works. It's clear the man's healed. So what do they do? They go, oh, well, he did that on the Sabbath day. No Messiah would do that. And so that becomes the seed of their opposition. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, sometimes people will tell us in today's world, Jesus never claimed to be the son of God. Or Jesus never claimed to be God. Or Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. We hear these kinds of things. And yet, when you look at the testimony of the people who were around him, even his opponents, they clearly got what he was saying, didn't they? This guy's claiming to be equal with God. He's claiming to be God's son. He's calling God his father. Now, Jesus 
he can understand some of where this pushback and this opposition is coming from, and he doesn't want to just let it sit there completely unopposed. And so take a look at the next verse, and he says this in verse 31. Now, if you're in, in your Bible, it won't be the, the next verse, but on, on the notes, it's the next verse. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, let me tell you what Jesus meant by that. That's a very accurate translation of what the original language says. What Jesus meant by that is, if I just testify about myself, my testimony will not be deemed to be true. You won't think my testimony is true. Now, why does he say that? Because he knows these guys are leaders. Many of them are lawyers. And according to Jewish legal uh, precedents and laws, even according to the word of God in the Old Testament, if you wanted to prove something, you had to have two or three witnesses. Your own witness just by itself was not enough for legal proof. Jesus knew these guys would be thinking of that. So he's saying, I know that if I tell you who I am, you're just going to discount my testimony because it's just me. Okay? So he goes on. There is another who testifies in my favor. If you, if you want another piece of testimony, if you want someone else to solemnly tell you what's going on, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John. Now, we had to differentiate Johns here. There's John, the author of this book, the disciple whom Jesus loved. The John being referenced here is not him. It's John the Baptist. Okay, so Jesus is telling these leaders of the Jews, you've sent to John the Baptist... And he's told you the truth. He's testified. He's solemnly sworn to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I am mentioning that you may be saved. Will you underline these words, not that I accept human testimony, because there Jesus is signaling to us something very important. And then I highlighted the next part, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, John the Baptist, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. Here Jesus tells us something important. On the one hand, you see he says in that part that I had you underline, I really don't need human testimony. I'm not subject to human testimony. In fact, in John chapter 2, at the very end, if you page back in your Bible and read it, he goes, I don't need or want human testimony because I know what's in a human being. So this is sort of a theme in John of Jesus being independent of human opinion and human approval and human love. He came to love us, whether or not we love him, is not important because the mission is for him to love us and approve of us and make sure that we gain the approval of the Father through his mercy and sacrifice for us. So Jesus says, I don't need human approval, but if you need it, go back to John the Baptist. Interrogate him again as you already did and find out what he has to say about me because he will tell you the truth. Then Jesus says something that's really important and good for us to know. He says, one of the reasons I don't need human approval is I know exactly why I'm here. And that's the part I bolded. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. What, 
what was one of the things that made Jesus independent of needing human approval? Of needing humans to, to love him back? It was he knew why he came. He knew his purpose. He knew the job that the Father had sent him on, and that is to save mankind, to offer his life on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And as long as he was on track with his purpose and the work that the Father had given him to do, in a sense, it it could be said human approval was not needed by Jesus. He just needed to be about the business that God had given him to do. And the, the New Testament is filled with this. Take a look at what Paul wrote to Timothy. This is good and pleases God our Savior. And do you see what it says about him? And this is for you. I hope you take this personally. It pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved, meaning you, meaning me, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus came to give us the most amazing gift, a knowledge of the truth, his forgiveness, his love, his approval, which leads to the Father's approval. I want you to write this down. As Jesus' popularity rose, so did the opposition against him. But Jesus kept working to accomplish one purpose, which is the salvation of our souls. Now, I'm going to tell you why today's message is so important. Because Jesus says here, understanding what Jesus is about, his work of salvation, is important to our eternal life. So that's the number one reason why today's message is important to you, is Jesus came as the Son of God to prepare a life after this life for you. That that you would know without any shadow of a doubt that when you die, that's not the end. That there is an eternal life waiting for you that Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, has prepared for you. But Jesus also came to extend the benefits and blessings of that eternal life back into this life. So in a sense, eternal life begins for all of us now. There's a sense in when it begins, in which it begins after we die and enter heaven. But there's a sense in which your eternal life starts now. And that is to have freedom from certain things and freedom for certain things. One of those things is to know how to orient and organize our lives. How should I know what true north is in my life? What should be the organizing principle around which I prioritize my life, set my schedule, spend my money, uh, create my relationships? How do I orient and organize my life now so that it's in line with what I'm going to experience in everlasting life in heaven? This is part of what Jesus came for. And the, and the problem is that in our sinful nature, the problem that Jesus is going to be pointing out to us today is we struggle to orient and organize our lives around Jesus, around the cross and the empty tomb, around God himself. And instead, we tend to orient and organize our lives around the approval and the opinion of the other people in our lives. 
And, and you know this, right? If you are running like a chicken with your head cut off, never able to slow down, never able to stop, never able to think for a moment because you're too busy trying to please everybody in your life, that's you. You've become a people pleaser instead of a God pleaser. You've begun to orient and organize your life around making people happy rather than playing to an audience of one, making God happy. And that is one of the very definitions of sin. How we orient and organize our lives. Is it going to be around God or is it going to be around the people in our lives? You see, peer pressure is a real thing. And it's a real thing, not just for high schoolers. I know most of us probably think that you leave high school behind, you graduate, and along with acne and trying to score a prom date, all that's gone now. No more peer pressure. Nothing could be further from the truth. That in fact, as we live our lives on social media and we, get, we feel pressured by what others are doing or we feel pulled and dragged along in the, in the direction of our culture, which is set by people. Remember the ice bucket challenge? There's a very benign example of it. I mean, that's not a bad thing or a harmful thing, but look at how that spread through social media. And pretty soon, all of us were trying to figure out what we're doing the ice bucket challenge for. I don't know if you've seen the little meme of the 13-year-old girl that was on, on Dr. Phil. Catch me outside. Thank you. You say it. How about that? Right? Thanks, James. You see, that, that stuff just goes like a wave through our entire culture, and we're all like following it and, and doing it. And pretty soon, like your pastor is saying, catch me outside. How about that? Like, Really? But on a more serious note, if you have been in Financial Peace University, you've heard Dave Ramsey say things like this, and I want to I capture these statistics, so I'm going I'm to read a little bit. You've heard that statistically speaking, 70% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. You've heard that 96% of Americans retire or die broke, and the average American is saving less than two cents of every dollar earned. If we review published financial statistics, we find that we're trying to keep up with the Joneses. Only the Joneses are broke, and they're making us be broke. If you've ever spent money, Dave Ramsey put it this way, if you've ever spent money you didn't have or bought something that you couldn't realistically afford, Perhaps you did that because you thought that would make you happy or it would gain you the respect of others to be able to display that. Dave Ramsey's big line, I think that w- this was this week, maybe the week before he said, I love this. Now, listen to the end of it in particular. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. You see where where our lives can tend to get oriented? Around the approval of people, around the love of others. And what Jesus is going to be telling us is, you want to know the hidden reason why some people don't believe in me? 
because they've oriented and organized their lives around the, gaining the approval and the love of people rather than the approval and love of God. We know that there can be many reasons why people doubt. There can be rational reasons of, uh, you know, I, I see all these things and learn all these things in the scientific world, and that raises doubts in my mind. Or maybe people go through a hard experience in life, and it's very emotional uh, for them to, to think about God allowing them to go through that. But Jesus tells us today there's another reason that maybe we haven't thought about so much, and that is, where are we organizing and orienting our life? Who's at the true center of our life? Let's dive back into the notes. Take a look, because Jesus is going to say, I really want you to understand, there is weighty testimony that I am who I say I am. Your Savior and the Son of God. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, I want you to notice something. Jesus lists three testimonies about them, about him, that he is truly the son of God. Do you notice what's not here? He's mentioned it briefly, a human testimony, John the Baptist. But he says, you know what? I don't need that. I have weightier testimony, not one of which is a human being. If you really want great testimony and proof that I am the Son of God and your Savior from sin, here it is. The works I'm doing, everything I'm saying, I can back it up with what I do. I'm, I am not a preacher who does not practice what he preaches. I practice it, and I practice it miraculously. The second thing is, the Father himself testified to me. In Jesus' ministry, this happens not once but twice, at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration. In fact, God the Father tells Peter to shut up. This is my beloved son, Peter. Listen to him. Peter, who's so bold and outspoken, needs to be told Listen to the Father's voice who's testifying about Jesus. And then finally, Jesus says, all these Old Testament scriptures that you as the leaders of the Jews are reading, read them carefully. You're reading them to pull out all the rules. You're reading them to, to honor Moses. But understand, these scriptures were not written about Moses. They weren't written only to download the to-dos and the not-to-dos. They were written to point you to me, the Messiah, Jesus, your Savior, the Son of God. So write this down. Jesus has weighty testimony declaring his identity, the works he was given to do, the Father himself who sent him, the scriptures written about him. Now, it's important to understand why Jesus is being so insistent even with this opposition, even under interrogation. Now, Jesus is, is pushing back with his own testimony, with his own witnesses. 
And he lays it out why this is important. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. I especially love that phrase, and will not be judged. You see, that again, in just a a very subtle way, is pointing to us not building our life around the opinions and the love of other human beings. Because what so often motivates us in life to change what we do, it's because we feel judged. And Jesus is saying, I've come so that you never again have to worry about being judged, not even judged by God. Because my forgiveness... My righteousness is going to so cover you that there is no judgment. Paul writes to the Romans and says, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus here is saying, that's the very reason I came. I want you to experience what life really is and have it to the full. A, A Christian psychologist once did a little research project, and I love this, and I don't know if you want to write some of these down. There's no blank for them. But he said, what does a person who really feels like they're living feel like? And and he researched this and came up with eight characteristics, and here they are. He said, people who are really living like themselves, they see themselves as emotionally and physically stable and healthy. Happy or or, uh, people who are really living a happy life feel a sense of personal control. They are optimistic about life. They're extroverted. They, they, They like to be around other people. They have close relationships that within their circle, there are friends and family members they feel close to. They have a spiritual foundation. They tend to have balanced lives, and they're creative. Eight characteristics. I'll read them again. Isn't it interesting? And, and when I, when I l- listen to this, I think there's a lot of truth to this, and I, and I think this is what Jesus w- came for, is to have us experience this in heaven, but also to experience it beginning now, that we no longer feel judged and begin to like ourselves that we have a sense of personal control over our lives, that we're optimistic, extroverted, have close relationships, we build our lives and orient them on a spiritual foundation. We have balanced lives and we're creative. Now that's living. And that's why Jesus came so that we could experience life to the full. All right. We're going to wrap up pretty quick here. Look at John 5, 41 to 44. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. He's looking at these Jewish leaders, and he notices something missing. Do you see it? You don't have the knowledge that God loves you in your hearts. That's a huge missing piece. You're not seeing how much God His heart is for you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe? Now he's going to explicitly lay out the hidden reason why we don't believe sometimes. 
How can you believe since you accept glory from one another? In other words, you seek the approval and the love of each other, but do not seek the glory that is the approval and love that comes from the only God. So important that we examine ourselves and say, where am I trying to get my approval? Where, where do I feel that I am being lifted up? Is it from other people? Or am I seeking that from God? And if I seek it from people rather than God, Jesus says, you're putting huge blinders on that will prevent you from trusting that Jesus is your savior. I want you to write this down and then we'll, we'll cover 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10 in closing. I will not believe the testimony about Jesus if I seek human love and approval more than God's love and approval. It's a huge trip up. But I, I, I saved 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 10 for the last because I want this to be ringing in your ears as you go out. See, what Jesus said is you don't have the love of God in your hearts. He said that to those leaders. And, and he did not mean you don't have enough love for God in your hearts. He meant you're not understanding the greatness of God's love for you in your hearts. You're not filling your heart with the love of God. And Paul says something really similar in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. It's so important that when we come to church or every week or wherever we are, we have the love of God in our hearts and understand that love, that beautiful gospel love that Jesus has for us. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. What we have received is so much. We, we can't even grasp it. We can't understand it, Paul says. Only by the spirit do we get it, that love. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us has freely given us in his son, Jesus Christ, and in his death and resurrection, in his immense love for us. Please have the love of God in your hearts and understand the importance of knowing that through Christ, you have God's approval. And through Christ, you have and will always have God's love. So, before we close, if you would like more information about Crosswalk or to listen to other messages, head over to CrosswalkPhoenix.com or come and see us. Services are held at Cesar Chavez High School at 41st Avenue and Baseline on Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. Visit our website for directions. And now, some closing thoughts from Pastor Jeff. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you sent your son, Jesus, your son, the son of God, to be our savior. There is no greater display of your love than that you would sacrifice your one and only son for us. Lord, help us not to block out your love by seeking approval from people rather than from you. Help us to understand deeply that we always already have your approval because of your son's death and resurrection. Help us deeply, deeply to grab into our heart this truth that there is therefore now no judgment, no condemnation against those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, help us to know 
that your son's death and resurrection is, is the, the path, the way to a brand new life, life to the full, here, starting now, and in eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.